there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Whether your preference is for sea or fresh water, I'm sure that very few fishermen, and even non-fishermen for that matter, would disagree with handing the title of world's ultimate game angling species to the marlin, which is the figurehead of a family of fishes known as the billfish. Quite an appropriate family name in more ways than one, because when you fish for these things, you're also going to see a big bill for the cost of the boat, as fishing for billfish is without doubt the most expensive offshore boat fishing in the world. That isn't why the marlins and the near relatives are called billfish. The real reason will be looked at in a few moments. First, I want to introduce Graham Pullen, who with literally hundreds of broadcourt marlin to his credit, experience in opening up new marlin fisheries, and responsibility for the development of particular marlin trolling techniques, is arguably one of the best sources of billfish information anyone could ever tap into. So let's kick things off by asking the obvious question. What exactly is a billfish? What is a billfish? Well, uh, identification of a billfish is anything with a long spike, like a garfish, you know, really anything with a bill that they use to kill their fish with. You've got all those four or five different species that covers the billfish. I don't know, they have a sort of cult status. Don't forget that billfish were being caught way before anglers caught them with rod and line. And it was um, the longliners really on live bait using live fish, had their live fish taken by the marlin, which came up as, uh, you know, they're full-on predators at the top of the apex chain. To, uh, and it was from there eventually that people started fishing live baits for them and then went on to lure fishing with them and, and rod and line, that sort of thing. Or, or within the billfish, if you, if you call everything a billfish, that covers both marlin and sailfish, and you know the ultimate coltfish is the broadbill swordfish. So you've got Atlantic and Pacific sailfish. You've got blue marlin, big fish, black marlin, big fish. The smaller cousin is the white marlin, and you've got the real rarities, which is the uh, longbill and shortbill and Mediterranean spearfish. And you know you can't really target those. They're sort of a, a lucky fish, a spearfish. And what about within species divisions? The terms Atlantic and Pacific are used for the blue marlin and the sailfish. Is this just a within-species division, or are they actually separate species that have evolved apart through geographical isolation over time? Well, they're supposed to be obviously Atlantic and Pacific. They call them Indo-Pacific, which is the uh, Pacific blue marlin, because it covers the Indian Ocean as well. But there was a claim about 20 years ago from an English guy, funnily enough, who allegedly called a black marlin from the Azores which we all knew that there's never been caught in history commercially, I'm talking as well. So the chances of a guy going out with a rod and line and actually catching a black marlin is just like beyond belief. It was supposed to have swum around the, the bottom of the Cape of Good Hope or Cape Horn, you know, but uh, most of the serious marlin fishermen know it, uh, it, it wasn't a black marlin, it was a blue marlin, probably with a shorter bill, because the black does have a, a short clubby bill, and probably a misinterpretation of the length of the bill made the guy think it was a, a black marlin. Surely this could have been verified by checking out the pectoral fins, which unlike those of the blue marlin, don't fold flat against the body. Yeah, they're rigid, they won't fold down. Um, they will fold down when you've had them in a big, if you've got a big, say, four, five, six hundred pounder, it's laying on its side, eventually the fin will collapse, and we think that was the sort of the reason this guy thought that it was definitely a black marlin, because the fins don't fold down, you are correct there. But obviously if you've got 
three or four or five hundred pounds of meat pushing down on the fin eventually that one will collapse and fold underneath it so that's all we could put down but generally when you get the fish if, if it's in the boat you can push it down it's on like a knuckle joint blue marlin folds down black marlin doesn't uh, much steeper head and a shorter bill on the black marlin and the blue marlin is a sort of deeper chest area when you see some of the pictures you can actually see if you look at a lot of pictures there is a a differentiation between the black and the blue there's a copper color in the in the blue marlin which you don't get with the black and there's a sort of gray silver which i assume they get the black from for the black marlin so after a while you can uh, you, you know you can see see the difference between them so no black marlin is totally different won't come into the atlantic at all mostly the indian ocean pacific tropical fish and goes into some subtropical and obviously runs along reef edges, shallower water as well. The blue marlin is more deeper water, offshore species. The white marlin will come in quite shallow water. And the sailfish, both species, Atlantic and Pacific, definitely will come in on the edge of reefs, and that's the place to catch them. You can catch them offshore on offshore banks, but they will come very close to shore as well. So is that it for marlin species? Uh, no, you've actually got another, uh, another species called the striped marlin. Doesn't come into the Atlantic at all. It's uh, Indo-Pacific, tropical. It doesn't go really in too far up into subtropical. They do migrate up and down a bit, you know, off the equator south and north. But definite sort of hot spots you can get them. The absolute pinnacle would be the tip of the Baja Peninsula at Cabo San Lucas. That's on the um, west coast of the states, running down from San Diego. There's a big peninsula goes down there. The top spot. I mean, it's, it's a, it was a mental catch. I, I, I still don't, not even sure I believe it. The best catch where they ball up bait when they're migrating south in the winter is a place called Magdalena Bay, which is actually north of Cabo, and they ball the bait up in these in these uh, bays up there. And one boat had seventy-two marlin in one day, which I find difficult to believe. I don't dispute they hooked seventy-two, but I'm not. You know, if you're taking forty minutes to land each fish, you know they must have had. 116 anglers on the boat I should think but fantastic fishing there's no question about that and Cabo San Lucas uh, allegedly the PR says they bait 20,000 marlin a year there obviously the majority of those are striped marlin they run about oh, I guess 100 pounds average 80 to 120 the top spot for getting big ones would be New Zealand which holds most of the world records and there they go huge they go to 400 pounds there and I would say although they can be caught you know all across the uh, Pacific Ocean. The next best place would be Kenya, off the Watamu banks and what they call the rips off, off the coast of East Africa there. They do get a, a good run of strike mile in there. That takes care of their east to west distribution, but what about the width of that equatorial band in a north to south direction, which could ultimately bring some species either into or along the edges of more temperate waters? I don't honestly know how far south they go, uh, say in the Atlantic, but I suppose you've got to take a general direction from the equator how far they go. They go down in the Atlantic as far as Brazil, probably further than that. This is the blue marlin, because obviously the blacks don't come in the Atlantic, I do the Atlantic first. But they definitely come further, to, to my mind, north of the equator. You can get them up off Cape Hatteras, Cape Cod. Uh, then if you draw a line ac across the ocean, you've got all the Central Atlantic, the Azores, Madeira, which has recently uh, come of age in the last sort of 20 years for bit really big marlin, right across to the Canary Islands, just off the west coast of Africa. The furthest north, I know 100% they've been caught, because I actually lost the first blue marlin there, a fish about 400 pounds, was off the Algarve, which you know, shocked everybody. And since I wrote the story out from that one, I think at least two fish, well over a thousand pounds, have come from there. I personally think the marlin do come up around the Bay of Biscay, given you know 
a bit of luck and uh, a fair wind, as I say, and some warm water. There's no reason why they couldn't come within, say, I reckon 100 miles of the, uh, of the British, southern British coastline. But certainly the White Island come up, there's no question. They've been caught long-lined up there, so there's no question they come up. But they are a little bit more tolerant of the water temperatures and the blues. But it really wouldn't surprise me to see a blue marlin come somewhere around the Bay of Biscay, off the coast of France here, you know, out for about 100 miles or so. This prompts the question... What are the chances of any ever reaching British waters? The records already show dead blue marlin and other billfish from around the British coast. So with all that's supposedly going on in terms of global warming, what, in your opinion, are the chances of a UK billfish in the near future if somebody were to go out and give it a serious attempt? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the two main species, without a doubt, that you can, uh, that you can catch, uh, and I think you've got a chance of, is the white marlin, which, as I say, is, is known to be more tolerant of a colder temperature. Now, not many people know that a guy off the Isle of Wight many years ago used to keep in touch with me and actually used to phone me, and he was the first guy to catch albacore, which is the long fin tunas, running south from the Isle of Wight towards France. Now, one, one year he did get strikes from a, a, a white marlin and actually saw it jumping, you know, so there's no question that they're there. Uh, the other thing is you've got the broadbill sawfish, which I know uh, are there and definitely, definitely worth catching with the new technique that they've uh, recently discovered off the coast of Florida. And the biggest one I've seen a photograph of was taken by a trawler just one mile off Kerry Head in Ireland. So that's, you know, that's, that's way up level with us. And I also think perhaps around the Milford Haven area where these long distance shark guys are going out, they're fishing pretty deep water. Nice clear blue water there. Wouldn't surprise me to see something like either a big six-school shark on the bottom or indeed swordfish at night there. Now we know where to catch them, my next question has to be how to go about doing it. And to help us understand that, perhaps we should know a little bit more about the feeding habits. Uh, as far as uh, what sort of fish they eat, well, they'll eat pretty much anything. If you were going for blue marlin and black marlin, the blue marlin, Atlantic and Pacific... With their mainstay of food, without a shadow of a doubt, is a generalisation term called bonito. That can be skipjack tuna, it can be a small big eye, it can even be yellowfin tuna. Uh, now that's a big species of tuna, and there was indeed a report, wasn't a report, it was actually factual, of a guy that was 70 odd years old fishing out in Mauritius. He hooked a hundred, or I think it was a 105 pound yellowfin tuna, fought the yellowfin to the back of the boat, a huge marlin came up, ate the yellowfin, missed the hook but gagged on it, you know, just choked on it, and they managed to fight the fish to the boat, and that was over a £1,000 blue marlin. So fish in excess of 8, 9, 10, 11, 1,200 pounds in the blue marlin category can easily eat a 100-pound tuna, and indeed that's what they do um, eat a lot of the time, yellowfin tuna. So bonito would be the general term, I say, uh, I don't know, 3, 4, 5-pound bonito would be, I guess, average food fish for both uh, blue and black marlin. As far as the Atlantic and Pacific sailfish go, I suppose they're going to feed on reef-edged stuff, which would be ballyhoo, which is a little small garfish-like uh, fish they catch along alongside the edge of the reef. Uh, out deep, they eat flying fish. Indeed, any small bait fish they'll go for, which is why when you fish for them, you can fish with strip baits, which obviously doesn't reflect, it's just something going through the wall, doesn't reflect any natural bait fish at all. They also take lures. They're, they're looking to take anything that goes through the water. Now, broadbill swordfish will eat absolutely anything they can get in their mouth. They'll eat on the surface mainly squid. I mean, when I say on the surface from, oh, I suppose 60 to 150 feet would be a standard squid fishing depth. They're eating squid up. They come up uh, feeding on the squid that 
migrate to the surface at night. During the daytime, it's now been discovered they're eating all manner of almost rubbish. They've been catching them on chunks of uh, barracuda in Florida, fishing in up to 1,500 feet of water with special um, lights, a light stick, a silium light stick, and indeed strobe lights they're using now, which um, work at huge depths. The one I had to take on uh, was a Dorado. Well, the Dorado don't live at that depth. So in other words, anything that's down there, any detritus or anything that's dying or falls, sinks down deep, those swordfish are mopping them up big time down there. So quite a diverse number of bait fish. You can, you can fish with lures, and I mean they, they reflect a fish moving through the water, but not any particular species of fish. It's just the actual movement that makes them grab. And of course, they've all got spikes on the end of their nose, and a great mistake a lot of numb fishermen believe that the marlin spikes a fish and uses it like a rapier well that's crazy because how's he hasn't got any hands to take the fish off like a kebab it can't take the bonita off the end of its bill and stick it down his mouth can it so what they do is they use it like a baseball bat and wheel it around underwater beating a fish through a shoal they go through a shoal of bait fish slash uh, left and right with these uh, big long bills which are like an extension of bone stun the fish turn around and eat them uh, the two sailfish, the Atlantic and the Pacific sailfish, they got a huge sail-like dorsal fin which they throw up and actually spooks all the tiny fish and makes them go into a tighter ball, which is what they call balling bait. And a pack of sailfish will swim round and round this ball of bait, but eventually one or two of them will dive through the ball and you see this left-right sort of whack, 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 uh, stun some fish, then they circuit again and as these fish are just tumbling through the water, they whoosh in and grab them. But what about world hotspots for the different billfish species? I'll start with the smaller ones. White marlin, I'd say world hotspots off the coast of Morocco, which not a lot of people know about. And also, uh, I've caught them over in uh, the Algarve, off the Algarve coastline. Uh, we've caught fish over there, uh, 60 pounds, 70 pounds, that sort of size. Canary Islands, that can be good for white marlin as well. The absolute pinnacle spot is Maryland, over on the east coast of the States, uh, around Cape Hatteras, up that way they have marlin tournaments there and they get like, I can't, I want to say hundreds per marlin, but they get 60, 80, 100 fish in one tournament with all the boats fishing. So if you want to catch a white marlin, east coast of the States, up around the sort of Maryland, uh, Ocean City is the hot spot in September. As far as blue marlin goes, this is Atlantic, we'll, we'll cover the Atlantic first. I suppose uh, because I fish here, uh, the Azores would be my favourite, fishing uh, over some of the banks there. Bermudas can be very good, get some big fish over there. Madeira, well, they get big fish, but, you know, you can hear a lot of blank trips there as well. So if you want a really, really big marlin, that might be the place to go, but, you know, you've got to be prepared to put those blanks in. The Algarve, again, although they've had big marlin there, uh, over a thousand pounds, it's a very, very hit-and-miss affair over there. The, the water temperature has to be just right, and the winds off Africa have to come off, you know, the coast of Africa to keep the water temperature up. That has to be just right as well. Further down the West African coast, good spots of marlin. Ghana's good. You get them, well, Madeira and the Azores, Canary Islands, that would be the main Atlantic hotspots I would consider. Cape Hatteras, uh, over that way, they do get a run over there. Then you start going south, your US Virgin Islands, all around the Caribbean. But the fish tend to be smaller there. You rarely get the granders, the fish over a 1,000 pounds around the Caribbean area. If you move further south down the Atlantic again, you've got Ascension Island. Now the fish, when they say they caught them off Ascension Island, they're all over that area of the Atlantic. It's just that the only base you can get a boat out from is Ascension Island. So the blue marlin migrate all over the place. The world record came, I think, from Brazil. I think that record's uh, still held down there. So um, that's about it. You know, you, you've got more than a few places to shake a stick at and try for them, but 
I think really the Eastern Atlantic would be my choice if I wanted to catch that type of blue marlin. As far as the Pacific blue marlin comes, Mauritius is very good. Um, you rarely get them as far north as the Seychelles. The Seychelles they get the occasional black marlin, but although they've got some good fishing up there, they don't get marlin. All along the coast, Mozambique, all the way down there, Chance of Blues, uh, move across the coastline, Hawaii, the main hotspot, obviously a lot of uh, famous fish and a lot of thousand pound marlin come from Hawaii, Papua New Guinea, all that way, all through that whole band, if you, if you just ran along either side of the equator, I guess a thousand miles either side of the equator and drew a band right across to the uh, west coast of the States, it covers Hawaii. The fish all swim in there, but you have to be aware they're all over the ocean. It's just they've got to be within striking distance of what we call a day boat that can go out for a day's fishing. Once you get to uh, west coast of America, anywhere off Central America, hot spots would be Cabo San Lucas. They get blue marlin in there in September. So there are plenty of places out there for the Pacifics. As an evolutionary scientist, one of my ambitions is to retrace Charles Darwin's visit to the Galapagos, and with that in mind, while looking into the possibilities recently, I was surprised to discover that there are now American-owned trolling boats based there, advertising what's claimed to be the best marlin fishing in the world. Certainly with that sort of offshore isolation, and the limitations the Ecuadorian government put on visitor permits, that could well be so. Sailfish, on the other hand, prefer to be much closer to the shore. So tell us a little bit more about the major hotspots for them. Uh, split the Atlantic and Pacific sailfish up. The Atlantic sailfish, I suppose if you wanted a hotspot, it would be the Florida Keys, December, December, January. There were, there were winter species there. They catch them occasionally, well not occasionally, they catch some numbers uh, further north off the east coast of the states. Say Cape Hatteras area, there's a finger of Gulfstream that comes out there. And, um, you know, once the boats run out there, it might be 60, 80 miles out. It's a long way out or further. Then they do pick the sailfish up. I've caught them up that far off uh, Cape Hatteras. Those fish migrate. They start packing up. They migrate all the way down the coast, uh, you know, as, as summer tails off. And then there's not really any, any fishing for them as such until they get around the Miami area where they are targeted big time as a tourist fish. As I say, they're not, you know, they're not a monster fish. If you had a, I think the biggest I had was 76 pounds. They do grow that big, but they're sort of 20 to 40 pounders. All the way through the Caribbean, very good chance, so uh, Grenada, St Lucia, all those islands, Jamaica, uh, running through there. Over on uh, the East Coast side, do you know, I don't really hear much about them being called over there. It seems to be more mild in that side. If anything, the, the main pack fish for the Atlantic salvage along the eastern coast of the, or eastern seaboard of the States, down to the Caribbean, I'd say that's the general area to, you know, to target them. As far as the Pacific salvage goes, Anywhere through Papua New Guinea, through Thailand, all that sort of way. Um, they drift fish out there with live baits because the fuel is expensive for them. They don't like uh, doing a lot of trolling with lures or, or skip baits there. <clears throat> Two hotspots stand out without a shadow of a doubt would be Cabo San Lucas on a, you know, in Mexico. Really good in the winter. Big fish. Further south, Panama, uh, Costa Rica. Big, big numbers. You know, you 20 fish a day. Big fish too. You know, 100 pounders, 80, 120s. Um, then on the off the coast of East Africa on Kenya, one big hotspot, well known world world hotspot, is off the coast of Malindi. They go off there. They they come off the Mamburi River there, about four or five miles, sometimes less. And again, big numbers, big numbers there. You know, um, I've got a feeling. Oh, I want to say thirty fish in a day or something like that would be. You know, it might might even be more. It might be forty fish in a day. I've I've read some of there, some huge numbers there. But certainly, you can get. 
four, six, eight a day uh, without too much difficulty. Prime time would be December, January. There is a sort of a real picky period when those sailfish are up off uh, off Melindi and Watamu Banks there. Yeah, I got my first sailfish out from Melindi. We boarded the boat at around 7.30, ran the base out almost immediately, and by 5 to 8, just had to be clear the edge of the reef, I'd already had one in the boat and away. The other point worth mentioning here is that when I was over in Malaysia lake fishing for giant snakeheads, the local angler who came with me mentioned a place called Koala Rompin, where they catch huge numbers of sails very close to the shore, and where the boats are relatively cheap to appeal to the Malaysian wage structure which is important, as fishing for billfish does in most other parts of the world appear to be a rich man's hobby. That's a good one, actually, uh, Phil, because it's, it's a fuel-intensive operation. Big game fishing for marlin, there, you know, there is a certain level of skill in it, but you have to think, when they're really big, a big fish, you can't wind it to the boat, you know, you... You, you're fooling yourself if you think you wind the fish in. If, you, if you're driving a boat in one direction and you're using some lures, you hook up a fish, the boat's doing, let's say, eight, nine knots if it's fast rolling with lures. There's, a, there's an 800-pound fish going the opposite direction. There's going to be no line on the reel and a big bang and the guy's going to fall on his butt out of the fighting chair. I know I've done it. The boat catches a fish, the crew catch a fish, the captain catch a fish, the angler just winds the reel handle and, and, and you know, pulls on the rod now. And then I'll be the first to say that, having said that, you know, a good angler can catch more than a bad angler. But it's the boat that does it. They are expensive, they're fuel-intensive. I'm really of the opinion that things are starting to change now with the cost of fuel, with the recession. The boat prices are still way up high. And the, you can catch marlin on bait, slow-trolled live baits. It costs you ne next to nothing in fuel. You're doing a knot to a knot and a half, somewhere like Mauritius. You can go out there and uh, charter a boat and you can catch big marlin. I mean, they've had like 16 fish over a thousand pounds in Mauritius. I mean, plus you've got the chance of a shark, and that's with using live baits. But it's difficult talking to some of the American skippers to try either surface skipping a live bait, uh, a dead bait, sorry, or deep trolling a live bait for a reduced cost, because they're not burning the fuel, but they still want to charge pretty outlandish prices, which uh, I, I feel they're very expensive. When I did most of my marlin fishing, it was a bearable a bearable cost and I used to go out with friends and we'd split the boat up you know two of us or four of us if we go and blue marlin fishing it was a bearable cost and nowadays it just seems to have got you know totally out of control and it is indeed a rich man's fault. This is probably a good point to move on to some of the billfish techniques. Now you mentioned earlier fast trolling which I know is a technique you pioneered. What does that entail and how does it differ from conventional trolling as done at most other venues worldwide? Well, the history of uh, uh, trolling a plastic lure, which is uh, supposedly looked like an artificial squid, you know, it's a hard-headed plastic uh, lure with a skirt behind it, a couple of hooks in it, and you stream it behind the boat as the boat goes along, and it's supposed to skip and bubble through the wake. Now, there's loads of different lures. majority of them were founded or bedded into Hawaii, which is the home of lure fishing. Now, they had lots of different lures over there, um, side vents, pushers, uh, vortex lures, you know, flat runners, loads of different types. They all did a different job. But if you set a spread of lures out, rather than get caught by the colour of the lures, and let's face it, a lot of lure colours, and as with any lure, it catches more fishermen than it catches fish. I, I developed, because I did a lot of trolling, I did have a technique which was just fast trolling, but with a, a spread of lures in a certain pattern, which was like the five on a dice. If you can imagine 
an aerial view of a fishing boat going along with a wake behind it and I had five lines out, two from the outriggers, two flat lines and a centre line. The centre line was a centre dot on the five dice. I'd bring that centre dot, as it were, forwards, closer to the stern of the boat. And my reasoning was this. If a marlin is down deep, 100, 200 feet, which would be their average depth for cruising around, they're going to look up, they're going to see the boat, hear the engine, see the bubbles off the, off the prop wash. They're going to come up and look at the lures. Now, when they come up, don't forget the boat's doing maybe 8, 10 knots or so. They've got to swim to keep up with it. As soon as they swim to keep up with it, they're following the back lures. If they follow the back lures and, let's say, they're 2, 3 feet down, they can't see the lures in the front. But by putting the centre line in, which is the centre and the five dot on the dice, my belief was, was once they got to the left or right outrigger lures, they could see out the corner of either eye this centre line. And if they then swung across and looked at the centre line, the two outside riggers, they could hear, they've got vibrations they can pick up. So that would excite them even more. If I pulled them up to within the centre dot of a dice, they can then see the two that's just off the stern of the boat. So what I would get was not just fish following, which a lot of you know people would get, oh, one was following today and didn't take. I didn't want that. I wanted a strike out of nearly every fish I took. Um, and if it raised up, I wanted to get a hit out of it or a hook up or lose it or whatever, at least make it bite. And by fishing this spread quite fast, I had a very, very good strike rate. The other thing you could do, if you wanted to boost up the uh, action in the back of the boat and have a lot of skipping and splashing behind you, you put two teasers on, a, on like a rope lanyard and fish it very, very close to the boat. They were supposed to represent fish. I just think it was an action that looked like something wiggling and splashing and sending a lot of bubbles out through the water. But I actually made some giant ones up a three feet long and I'd put a piece of about four inch plastic piping cut two feet long and I'd hammer down a piece of two by two or something wood in there and drill holes in it and tie a piece of vinyl skirt slashed at the back and, and I'd have fish coming up and batting the life out of that God knows why, you know, it looked nothing like uh, any other bait fish I've ever eaten, but it would get them excited. You can get mirror lures that dive down and uh, send off shafts of light and flashes of colour to try and pull up fish from the depths. And obviously, these don't have hooks in them, you can't afford to have a hook in them. Um, and I made a very great mistake uh, fishing a competition well, once out in, um, in well, it's off, off the coast of Watan, we're in Africa, we were fishing, and that was high point fish was marlin. And I had some really nice uh, Hawaiian teasers, but I put them out on, on, on quite flimsy line, it would be about 50 or 80 pound line. And obviously if marlin came up, I think it was a strike, marlin came up and uh, whacked it with his bill. The next thing I know, it's uh, hooked up on this thing, well it's not hooked up, it's tangled around its bill, and it's leaping around off the back of the boat, and eventually just uh, went off with a great big pistol shot carrying the, the lure with it. So if you are going to put anything out, put a hook in it, but if it's going to be big in a teaser, just make sure whatever you tie it on with this is a good piece of cord, you know, so it can, when they grab it, it can uh, rip it out of their mouth and then they get even more aggressive. Another bit of pioneering work which I know you was involved in was the opening up of the marlin fishery off the Azores. Yeah, the Azores. I took credit for that totally. Uh, I got an invitation to go over there and fish from the island called Fial, which is in the western uh, side of the archipelago, only a small island just off Pico. And there's some banks there, and it's a big, big commercial area for a big eye tuna, which they catch on poles, poling out the live bait. And I got an invite to go over there and fish uh, with a guy he's called Captain Luis Lage, and his boat was the Rebeo and discover, you know, were there any marlin out there, or could they be caught on rod and line, and generally test fish it. And I was flown out for a week, I only had uh, six days fishing there, and we decided, again, lure fishing, I wanted to do fast trolling, because the other reason I wanted to do fast trolling was, 
if you worked out, uh, if you're doing six knots a day, trolling around for eight hours, you work your mileage out. If you're doing ten knots a day, you're covering more ground. If you're fishing five days times those extra two or three knots, you've effectively got another day's fishing. Predominantly we were doing uh, a lure fishing there because we wanted to cover as much ground as we could to find where the fish were. Um, you can do dead baiting or now they call it uh, pitch baiting where you troll a mile and up on a lure and just toss a bait back on a, on a different lighter rod and hook up that way. But we wanted the ground coverage trying to find the fish. And I remember it was phenomenal fishing. The first day I, I was out we fished the Condor Bank. We barely got to the edge of the Condor Bank bang away goes the rod screaming and that was I think 267 pounds we fished again I got another one of I think 286 I think it was and out of the six days fishing I know I fought 20 marlin blue marlin these are and the biggest I brought in was uh, 400 pounds which they've caught much bigger fish than that uh, you know since then and we also tried shark and we had mako shark and blue shark to I think about 176 was a was the biggest um, shark we had there so fantastic fishing the following year <clears throat> when i came back and wrote a story up on it i had all my friends around did a slideshow we uh, decided on a week's fishing and then bear in mind the fishing charter prices are about 200 pound a day so for four of us guys splitting out 50 pounds for a corner and having a rod out was uh, was a bonus by then the american boats within Wow, well, they they were there after the first article. I think I did one in Marlin magazine, and my phone went at three o'clock in the morning from a an extremely wealthy American gentleman uh, who proceeded to extract my 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 brains over about a period of about an hour on it. Next thing I know, there's some big big Marlin boats there. Within like weeks, they were shipping the Marlin boats over there. After that, the prices went up. But that particular year, I was with some English guys, and we actually set the European record with five blue Marlin in a day. The biggest one I actually uh, leaded up myself uh, to the boat was uh, £767, I think it was. And unfortunately as well, uh, the charter company that ran the boats then used to request all fish to the property of the boat and they had to bring them in. So we had five huge marlin in the boat and they went into a freezer and they were alleged, allegedly going to be sold for food. I heard later they went for fish meal, which is a terrible waste of a fine fish. Of course, now it's changed. You know, you don't bring the fish in, you can release them. You only bring in record fish, should you so wish. But the Azores, I say at that time, was fantastic fishing. is still fantastic fishing. They've since had blue mine over a 1,000, and bluefin tuna there, I think, approaching 800 pounds. In terms of what goes on the end of the line, much of what you've given us so far has been centred on lures. But I know that live baits can also catch some very good fish. So could you compare and contrast the use of live baits versus lures? I think on, on a good day I would outfish anybody with baits. I generally do with lures. <clears throat> However, being slightly pig-headed on that, one trip on Mauritius when I was having one of my many holidays over there, I uh, stuck with lures determined to catch a fish and I had seven straight day blanks. And on the eighth day the skipper was drumming into me, Graham, the fish aren't on the top, they're 200 feet down, we need to get a live bait down there. And it was literally on the last day of that particular holiday I had that um, we put a bonito out and i just tell you man it wasn't out there 15 minutes and I got a, a, about 200 pound fish I think it was so don't be too pig headed and, and listen to the skipper's advice as well but generally you know, I think I'd, I, I would do well with lures even now different countries if fast trolling with lures are a way to go the downside of bait fishing is well there's two sides obviously it's a, it's a bait, it's a live bait or a dead bait your marlin is going to eat it he's going to swallow it and you're going to gut hook the fish there's two sides to that. 
brilliant you know you're, you're not going to lose a fish you can afford to take your time the hook's not going to fall out he swallowed it downside is you can't release a fish well you can release it you can cut the leader obviously but you know if it's gagged on the bait then it's going to die of starvation it's never going to be able to eat anything lure fishing in contrast is yes you will lose a few fish but you know i came up with a hook configuration that uh, gave me a, a huge increase on strike rates or conversion ratio from strikes to fish on the boat you're hooking them in the mouth the minute they shut their mouth because you're pulling the lure along behind the boat the second they shut their mouth that hook pulls in 99.9 percent are going to be hooked in or around the edge of the mouth so very good for releasing the fish and what is that hook configuration glad you asked that phil there's you can do opposed hooks you can do a tandem hooks you can do single hooks i found the best way was two ten o seven seven three one c demon hooks one up one down so what we call opposed hooks now then between that if a marlin comes up behind a lure and he hits it from the back because you take the rigid nylon which would be 400 pound mono between those two hooks it would flop to one side so what i did was put play a six inch piece of uh, 18 swg spring wire between strap to the hooks and then tape over it so if a marlin came up and he hit that back hook it immediately sprang back into position it didn't stay bent and in other words you're offering the fish just one hook that sprang back he still got two hooks and the other thing i did most lures have a have a face to them a slope on them which makes them run up one way or run up down the other i worked out by measuring a fish's a dead fish's mouth that the roof of the mouth of a marlin is very hard the bottom jaw is soft and that's where you want the hook to go in so i would put my front hook on the tandem hooks being down facing and the back hook further back facing up and nearly always the fish would hook on the on the down hook which is in the bottom of the jaw which is a good piece of meat to go into got a good hook hold also pretty good to take out if you want to release a fish there's also my favourite marlin live baiting technique of going out looking for individual fish, usually striped marlin at the surface, as indicated by circling birds and the fish's sickle-like fin protruding from the water, then sight-casting a live bait right onto its nose. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, predominantly, I would say, Mexican, Central American, and that's fishing with live baits about a pound, you know, like a, a mackerel or a cabalito, which is basically a scad, and they just nose hook the fish, 100 pound mono, tray six feet long, about a six or eight o uh, eagle claw wide gape hook, and you just, you can be trolling lures at the same time, or you can be looking for birds. If you're trolling lures and you suddenly see a marlin come up behind the lure and he doesn't hook up because they get quite excited, uh, the skipper or yourself can nose hook a live bait from the live well, toss it out the back behind the boat, tow it, and nearly always, one hopes is nearly always, probably, I guess if you wanted a percentage, I'd say, Three quarters of them will eat that live bait over the lure, even though the boat's still going forward and the lure's still, you know, working. Live fish are what they eat, not lumps of plastic, so they're going to swim up and grab the live bait. The other way of doing it is is, is sight casting. That's really really exciting. Is when the the skipper or if you've got good eyesight, you see them yourself. You see the birds, the frigate birds, wheeling up in the air, and then when they start to drop to the sea it's because the marlin are driving the bait fish in a ball to the surface you race a bait over to the ball and you, you know hook up a live bait no lures out you just race a boat there and free cast a live bait lobbing it if you can into the middle of the bait ball and you hope you get a take that way because then when you hook the fish up it's really close to the boat very exciting sort of lightweight medium tackle fishing 30 pound line 50 pound line the only problem then is that when the fish starts jumping as it will do very close to the boat 
Because you're standing up against a stern, you can hear everybody else on board cheering every time it clears the water, but you don't actually get to see the fish yourself, because particularly on a lumpy day, as the skipper reverses the boat down on the fish, all you get to see is a constant wall of water crashing in over the transom, getting in your eyes and soaking you through. But good fun nonetheless on very light tackle. Presumably, it's a very different scenario when live bait fishing for blue marlin. Blue marlin need heavy tackle. The blue marlins, I'm not going to say a heavy boring fight, they might upset people, but a lot of people are sort of disenchanted with blue marlin fishing that have uh, not done a lot of it. But strike marlin fishing, big action, you know, not unduly long fights, and you get to release a fish fresh and a very small hook. What about fly fishing for billfish, particularly sailfish? Have you ever given that a go? Uh, yeah, I've done the uh, Atlantic sailfish, I've not done the Pacific sailfish. The one they go for is uh, generally in the sort of Costa Rica, Panama area where they get big packs of big fish and they tease them up either on lures or on baits, you know, skipping a dead bait across the surface. They tease them up, wind the baits really close to the stern of the boat and when they see the fish with that neon lit up appearance where they know it's really excited, the anglers standing in the stern of the boat cast the fly out to the fish. You can also get Atlantic sailfish the same way but they, they don't troll and they use what's called like a daisy chain of live baits where they, they put a string like sort of washing line of about 20 baits out on a little copper wire. They're not hooks, they put the copper wire through the front of the eye sockets of the baits, the pilchards, then bend the wire back over to hold them. They'll put about 8 or 10 on these uh, rigs, tow it slowly behind the boat and then they bail out loose loose stuff so eventually the loose stuff swims up to the ones that are being towed because that's their natural reaction is uh, is to huddle together so in effect the boat's trolling a huge bait ball behind it and i've caught tuna blackfin tuna on the fly when we've been trying to get a sailfish up and i've seen it done but you know the rules are that you should take the boat out of gear immediately the fish is teased up the back and you know a couple of times i've been out and there's a bit of a, a time lapse shall we say between the boat coming out of gear and effectively, really, all you're doing is trolling the fly behind the boat. So it's not something that that, uh, that that turns me on too much. It's a sort of entertainment factor, I suppose. It's just something different. If you caught a lot of sailfish on, on baits and lures, you want to do something different, I can understand it. And, of course, a fly rod, you know, they're not designed for pumping up big fish. They're designed for casting fly lines. So you're going to spend quite a lot of time on each fish. I've always gone the other way. I want to get the fish in quick, basically, because I want to go, go and catch another one. Another big plus when sight casting to marlin right off the back of the boat is that when they get turned on by the bait, they light up and change colour, which is an absolutely amazing thing to see. Yeah, it's like an iridescent green glow. It comes up on their pectorals and their dorsal fins. Um, it's an excitement light, really, that comes on that they throw as a, a sort of colour thing. I don't know why they do it. It's just, it, you know, it does tell you that they're absolutely stoked up, red hot, ready to grab something. You can actually get it in some species of Trevally Jacks, I understand. I've not seen it myself, but I have heard about it. But yeah, most of the bill, well, nearly all the billfish family, I, I don't know about the broadbill sawfish, I don't think they do. But, um, you know, striped marlin, blues, blacks, they, they get this sort of neon colour in their, in their pecs and sometimes along their dorsal fin, generally the pectorals and lower fins, ventrals, and they light up, what they call light up. And you can see sometimes under the water, you'll see something behind a deep swimming lure, and, and if you're not used to it, you think, what's that? What's that colour in the water? It only takes a few seconds, and if the skippers or crew see it, then they react to that because they know that's a marlin, excited marlin, that's following either your bait or your lure. With marlin in particular, but billfish generally having such a high commercial value, how then does the future look in terms of there being enough about to make the high cost of pursuing them worthwhile? 
I've got to say, Phil, be honest, it looks pretty grim, and that's purely from the commercial overfishing um, where they're doing long line, and it's totally indiscriminate. I'm not, I mean, it's the way to go fishing in a way, rather than, uh, let's say, the big purse netters, you know, they go for the tuna and, and sweep them all up with helicopters. I mean, that's just bonkers. That's totally bonkers fishing like that. I know they're feeding people, but it's not right. It's not sustain sustainable. But, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't hold a great deal of hope there's always going to be fish there and now uh, a lot of countries do protect the the marlin but compared with the metric tons that are landed by commercials it's just ridiculous and even at the end of the day if they're dead hanging up you know on, on a long line they're totally dead they need to swim to uh, to live what's, what's the point you cut them off they sink to the bottom whereas if an angler catches that fish it's just a totally different value that it's worth because a you can release it and b the amount of money that an angler brings, a sport fisherman brings to the pursuit of marlin, it, I'll tell you what it is, it's this. You fly to a different country, there's the flights, you're going to take hotel there, you're going to charter the boat possibly for several days, the crewman gets paid, the captain gets paid, you're going to eat when you get there, the restaurant people will get paid. Not me, but some people tip the waitresses, they're going to get paid. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost endless What if you put a value on a marlin. If somebody's going on a marlin fishing holiday and spends, let's say, to two thousand pounds or say on average if you want to catch one say a couple of couple of thousand three thousand pounds something like that what he actually physically spends in the end is not there might be four or five thousand pounds you know in in actual value to that country and i think some of the the tourist results are are becoming aware that you know that fish has a much higher value than just a dead market value tell us a little bit about your own personal achievements on the big billfish scene as far as uh, different marlin records, I've never held any world records on the marlin, uh, line class records or otherwise. My own personal tally, I used to record everything, write it down and log it, like as you do, you know, when, you, when you're catching different species and uh, different sized fish and you're breaking a personal best. But I did stop, I got to 250 on marlin, and that striped marlin, blue marlin, few black marlin, and I decided it really doesn't matter to anybody except me, and even... I would tend to lose interest in numbers. You might just want to say, well, I've caught 500. It makes no difference, but I know how many I've caught. Um, I used to occasionally have a marlin build done, I have my 50th marlin done, and my 150th. And then after a while, you just think, well, it's just, it's just a numbers game. As far as the size of marlin goes, I suppose I've probably caught, if I did used to specialise in anything, it was probably blue marlin fishing couldn't tell you the exact numbers of blue marlin I've caught between with that because I've done all my records in but um, it will be well over 100 on blue marlin certainly never broken 700 pounds 697, 647 I think it's 646 so quite a few 600s, quite a few 500s, 400s and then plenty in the I suppose 150 to 300 pound range which is basically what the average size marlin is, of course you get two marlin as well, you've got the black marlin um, I think it was 367 was my biggest black marlin. I was taken on a live bait. gave me a most unbelievable fight. They're much stronger, much stronger than the blue marlin, really. The blacks fight deeper, and they are definitely a totally different fighting proposition. Uh, other ones, you get white marlin. I've only had a small one, about 40 pounds. You get the uh, short bit of long bill Mediterranean spearfish. Caught one of those in Mauritius. I think it was about 50-something pounds, which was quite big at the time, but I wasn't obviously targeting spearfish. I just got lucky on a on a marlin fishing trip over there. Sailfish in Atlantic and Pacific. I caught quite a few Atlantic sailfish, but I've got to be honest, I've never been really impressed with them. They are a smaller 
species and their Pacific cousins, the Pacific goes way bigger. I suppose if you want to put an average size on an Atlantic sailfish, it would be 20, 20, 30, 40 pounds, something like that. Of course, they do grow bigger, but that's the general average size. But should you fish with those, say, 12 and 15 pound spinning rods, then you're, you're going to get some really good action on They jump all over the place. But for me, unfortunately, I've always been trying to get Moby Dick, and I like big fish. So, uh, you know, although I've caught them, they don't exactly float my boat too much. On the other hand, the Pacific sailfish, way bigger. I had quite a few up to about 120, 130. Even bigger, they get up to sort of 160, 180, which really is a big Pacific sailfish. They're really good scrappers. They are excellent scrappers, purely because the bulk of their size, you know, they're, they're three, four times as big as an Atlantic, so you get three or four times the fight. Then comes the legendary, the coltfish, the broadbill swordfish. Of those, I've caught none, I have to, I have to say. I've not specialised in fishing for those at all. Only recently I did have a go for them, and I've tracked down a guy, as you need contacts for all of this, uh, Richard Sanzik over at Bud and Mary's in Isla Mirada. Huge number of uh, broadbill swordfish he's caught, and I had one quite quite recently. I can't even say it was a hookup. They call it a hookup in America, but for me, I had a fish on for a while. I got the bait back, got the head with a hook and the usual whole shebang back except the fish. So, but, you know, eventually it will come. If I, if I target them, they'll come. It's like all fishing, you've just got to target the right species. So the swordfish remains the one missing inclusion from your billfish CV. If you do ever get the urge to complete this ultimate Grand Slam, what might be the chances of you doing it, if not in UK waters, then at least somewhere around the British Isles? It's one of those species... That I've seen two. One was in Cabo, St. Lucas, that was surface fishing, uh, you know, just going along. We were trolling. We saw one fish uh, many, many years ago, early 70s. I didn't really know the significance of it. The Mexican crew, uh, well, I can't tell you, it was like a mixture of crack cocaine and crystal meth. I've never seen them go bonkers trying to get this live bait in the water. And what it was, I thought, was, was two, because we were looking for what they call tailing marlin. We were looking for striped marlin, 100, 120 pounds. And the crew went absolutely apeshit over this fish. And I thought it was two, because I could see two dorsals. Because when a, a broadbill sawfish is cruising on the surface, you see his dorsal fin, and you see the tip of his tail fin. So I thought it was one fish following the other. I had no idea it was two together. That fish they estimate was six, seven hundred pounds. Now, of course, I realise I would be going apeshit as well. But at the time, we just thought, why won't those two fish take? We never caught it. Another one I saw was about four hundred. We baited it, we baited it, we baited it. Nothing. Now that's on the surface. They're notorious for being very, very difficult uh, to catch on the surface. And I mean, it's like a handful of people in the world have ever caught broadbill sawfish on the surface. Now, of course, they catch them down deep. They started off Miami uh, 20, 30 years ago, catching with Silum light sticks to to attract them uh, and make the the green and the red of the of these light sticks look like squid, look like uh, spawning squid. In recent years, the rarity value, although they're commercially uh, viable for people to go and catch, rod and line wise, in six or seven years, down at Bubba Mary's Marina, Richard Stanzik, he has absolutely pioneered the swordfish in there from his long line experience in days in depths hitherto unknown up to 1800 feet they're fishing they can't use the silum light sticks because they're plastic case and when i've gone six gill fishing off gibraltar i've actually had them burst all the all the green muck comes out so they now use a special plastic lindgren pitman is the company that makes them a strobe light that pulsates at depth and doesn't burst now he has had wait for this one boat or two boats just the two the family boats 500 broadbill swordfish and they're now catching them up to something approaching 700 pounds off miami they're getting in on the technique up there now if you say 
what's the chances of catching Graham? I'd say I've had two sessions and I've been very, very unlucky not to get one given their catch rate with this with this one guy, with Richard and his son, who's perfected this technique. If I go again, if I go and had even two days out and don't catch one, I'd be really, really surprised. The fish he's had three, four hundred pounds. You know, they're big fish. Not the world's greatest fight, don't get me wrong, because you're hooking them in such a huge depth of water. But should I want to collect one, to me, it's absolutely there for the taking. Now, as before, it was a prestige fish. Now, if I want to catch one and I put the scalp in my hat or whatever, I can go and get one. What's the burning desire like? To be honest, I got old enough. I'm not really bothered. If I catch one, great. It'd be nice to say, you know, I've called everything. I don't really want to go somewhere like Kenya and catch one of £100 or something, which they do at night. If I get one, I'd really like to get either A, a £400 one from a foreign country, or be the first person to ever bring one in British waters. And honest to God, I really think there's a chance of catching one at night here. With regard to northerly latitudes, I agree with you that there is absolutely no reason why, whether in deep water access permitting that is, it shouldn't be possible to catch one off the Irish coast. But that isn't going to happen accidentally. Some pioneering soul is going to have to go out there deliberately and blaze that particular trail. Uh, yeah, you've got to target it. Now, the other thing I didn't mention about uh, Richard fishing in Florida is his is all daytime fishing. It's not at night. Previously, the Siloom light stick fishing, which is uh, off Miami, that's all night fishing because the squid come up from the bottom. They migrate to the surface. The, you know, the broadbill sawfish come up and feed on them within the top tier of water, 60, 200 feet, that sort of thing. Now, Richard's found out during the day they can survive huge pressures uh, down deep and not only do they survive them but they're down there feeding they're eating everything so the downside is that i think eventually the long liners will get in on the act and they realize that these uh, special strobe lights can catch these fish at depth and the numbers will go down rightly as you said the british coast they've had the martin no they did have one up in newcastle or somewhere washed up i mean they've had these swordfish turn up in nets and that everywhere uh, my personal preference would be ours is silly round towards Milford Haven, not too far up the Irish Sea, and then southwest coast of Ireland. If you really want to nail me down, I'd say round off Mizzen Head to Kerry Head, and one mile off Kerry Head, one was trawled up, 300 pounds, I've seen the newspaper cutting, I've seen the photograph, uh, there's no question they're there. I now think you don't need to go out of at night, because don't forget, you know, all these areas, you've got to get the weather to go out. I think you could do somewhere very deep water, within a sort of 40 mile distance of, of, of any of these ports that operate from these coasts i reckon you've got a shot at it if you if we fish the same technique and we fish deep and they're only fishing one bait at a time they can't fish more than one they tangle up so you know you're fishing one bait deep just sit there just wait I w i'd reckon you'd probably do it in a two or three two or three day session i i know for a fact a guy called zig gregorek is actually going to the isles of Scilly and is trying to set up a trip there to go out and do day and night fishing and he also like me wants to get the first broadbill sawfish and finally to draw in any loose ends have there been any epic battles or other incidents that you might perhaps like to share with us well listen i'll tell you Phil, honestly i've never I've never been one to say, oh, I've lost six fish over a thousand and this and this and this, you know. I've not broken 700 pounds, I'll be perfectly honest. You know, I've had a, I've a lot of fives and sixes. I've not broken 700 pounds yet. It won't keep me awake. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. But I was fishing out once. I got an invitation to fish with uh, Jim Edmiston, who ran a world fishing tour with a mothership combination called El Zorro. And I was lucky, really. I was, he, he phoned up in the middle of the night. 
and I was the only European uh, fishing writer that he invited. He knew my writings in Marley magazine, and he, he invited myself and my wife out to uh, to fish. And we basically we we landed in Tenerife, picked up the boat there, and fished some sea mounts off the west coast of Africa, way out in the ocean, caught absolutely nothing. And then eventually we got down to the Cape Verde Islands, and it was there that we're trolling off Sal Island in something I've recalled. It was very very shallow water, two or three hundred feet of water there, um, that I hooked up a fish. It was on a 130-pound test gear. It was on a fin or lever drag reel. We were fishing on the 130, all the you know the maximum tackle, and all I can describe was a hole in the water, which which you could have dropped a full fiesta in. The skipper was Captain Billy Bora, very very experienced big marlin fish. He was screaming from the uh, from the flying bitch about the size of the fish. It was a grander. How can I describe it? The fish was emptying the reel at a phenomenal rate. The boat was being slowed. The boat was going backwards. All I was doing was just, you know, there's no question I wasn't fighting the fish. It was off and running. Uh, a, a truly monster fish. I've no idea how big. Billy said it was over a thousand. I'll, I'll take his word for it. Eventually, a member of the crew or captain, it could be anybody, it wasn't the captain in fairness, it was, it was, it was one of the members there, I won't mention his name, uh, leaned across because he thought the reel was going to get spooled out and pushed the lever to the strike button. Well, I nearly went out the chair. I had one arm around the back of the fighting chair and the other was just basically clutching on for dear life. And like a pistol shot, I spiralled backwards and, and, and that was the end of that. That We came to a part into the ways. When we got back, um, an extremely pissed Billy Bora got the uh, electric scales out and put the test on the drag and it was something like 73 pounds of pressure was on the drag, which was nearly dragging me over the side. That was really my biggest fish. My second mile I ever hooked in my life, the first one I ended up was a couple of couple hundred pounds out in Bermuda. I was fishing with what's called a butler's jet. Was um, John Holmes invented something called a butler's chrome-headed jet, which he used to fish in the Canary Islands. And I got a couple of these, and I hooked a fish that was probably well over 900 pounds there. Um, I lost that one. Not a long fight, but those are my two truly big fish, which unfortunately both got away. The longest fight I've had in a mile, I'm embarrassed to say, was in an electrical thunderstorm. Um, it was one of the Caribbean islands, I think it was off Jamaica. The fish wasn't big, it was about 158 pounds. It was foul looked in the cheek, and I think it took me way over two hours to get it in a storm. It was, uh, it was a terrible battle because the thing was we knew it wasn't a big fish. So we couldn't back the boat in the storm. A fish did pretty much what it wants. Eventually I got it and I boated it, exhausted but happy. What about specific red letter days as opposed to individual big fish? I suppose there's about four days fishing. I mean, I've, I've caught a lot of marlin, but there's about four days fishing that uh, in different places. Once it was over in Cabo St. Lucas, I was fishing with a guy called uh, Ted Kershaw from Roehampton, and we'd been catching the odd marlin. The boat, I can even remember the boat, was called Kensabi. We charted it to go out, and it was real, real borderline on rough, you know? And the skipper was cock-a-hoop, this was brilliant, this would bring the fish up. I thought the only thing this is going to bring up is my breakfast. But anyhow, we went out with Ted, and we fished uh, Caballitos, the live bait. We went out towards the Jamie Bank, and we fought and we landed, no word of a lie, ten marlin between us and Ted. We had five each, and we, you know, we came home. That, I would say, is probably one of the most memorable days fishing on, on numbers I can, uh, I can remember. As far as a bigger fish, those are strike marlin in, the sort of record I can lay claim to is when I was doing my uh, fast trolling with this five dot dice pattern or spread of lures. Uh, it was in Mauritius. I got uh, three on lures. I think the biggest was 537 pounds before one o'clock in the afternoon. That was a record from Mauritius on lures. It may well have been beaten. I think somebody had four on lures, but it was in all day. I got back by lunchtime 
Um, so that's uh, uh, two out of the four. The third catch was that one I mentioned previously was the one where I was out with the um, with the four English guys we were fishing with uh, with, with, with Ted Leg. Um, we actually had a mile in a piece. We each caught a mile. As I say, the biggest I wired up was uh, seven hundred and sixty-seven or something like that. Big fish. And uh, because the four of us, one each, had all had a mile in that day, we were absolutely, you know, we were flying, we were on cloud nine. And I came up with the idea, then I said, Ted likes fishing, this is Ted Legg from Gosport, was one of the, well he is about one of the top skippers you're ever going to fish with for marlin. I said, I reckon Ted will wind one in. So, you know, I said to the other guys, if we ever get a strike on the way back home, and bearing in mind we'd already done four, so we were flying on these lures, we thought we are going to get a strike. I said, we must let Ted take it, so we're on the way home, we're nearly home bang, elastic band breaks on the rig line away it goes, so eventually under great duress we get Ted in the chair to fight his fish and he gets it, the bad side of it was, he got me up in in the flying bridge to drive the boat and I was trying to do reversing, I think I took most of the cogs off his reverse gears, trying to get back, but that one sticks in my mind you know, that was a real a real buzzle bit we brought the fish in, but it was, um, it was that was a real day to remember that one the final one I'd have to say, probably to close up your story, Phil, I remember I had a black marlin. I fought this black marlin. Now, I don't lose any sleep over any fish which is eaten. You bang it on the head. I caught this fish on a live bait. I don't know how long it took me. I've never used it in an article, actually. I've got some good pictures of it as well. And we brought it in. We gaffed it. It tore off at a gaff. It went away. This fish fought so hard, I cannot believe you, and it deserved to live, it didn't deserve to die. And I could feel the upwellings of tears behind my eyes. I was wearing sunglasses because I was right on the limit for not wanting to kill a fish. I desperately wanted this black marlin at the time. That would have been my biggest one. I think it was 367 or 368. And, you know, this fish was flailing and thrashing like you wouldn't believe. And to me it was a question of, do we just cut the line, let the thing go, or do you want the hero worship, the big ego kick that all fishermen like? Uh, you know, you want to hang it up, etc., just for the sake of a photo. Unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a sort of hunter-gatherer type, as it were. We brought the fish in. That's the closest I've come to giving up fishing ever, and that's the first time I've ever told that story. Anyway, so we're, we're close out there, so you have to make a decision when you want to bring the fish in. It's a personal thing. But, you know, I passed my uh, my borderline there. I don't have a problem with it now. But that that was really made me think, you know, should I actually stop fishing? Am I doing the right thing? However, it is a sport. People eat fish. If we don't catch them on rod and line, the commercials are going to kill them, probably wipe them out anyway. So I figure at least fishermen have the option of releasing the marlin. There's a poor fish on a commercial line. they got no chance. It's a one-way ticket to the fish factory. Not quite finished yet. I want to ask you just one more question. Yes, you can come fishing with me. <laughs> <laughs> and you can have first strike. When you were catching all these fish, were you wearing Levi jeans? What, the same ones we got today? <laughs> no, it may. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I do, I do tend to wear jeans quite a bit. Yeah, yeah I, probably, I probably was. When we did the Levi jean advert, you are correct, we did, a, we did an advert. That was actually which I didn't mention was uh, one of my better fishing trips. In six days, I caught 17 mile in for a, a video advert over in Cabo St. Lucas up to, I think, about 460. But, yeah, that was a memorable trip. But um, I fished like dawn, dusk, day through the night. It was just unbelievable. We just had to fish. I changed boats during the day. Uh, we just ground the fish out. But we had to catch 17 mile in just to get that one advert. All that time for just one advert. So how long did it run for? It ran for seconds, as it were, probably, I don't know, say 40 seconds. It ran on TV for a while, and then one of the greenies said they don't like it because it was intimating that a fish could be caught on the thread from their jeans, which, of course, it could be. You know, I think we, we tested it or wet tested it at about eight pounds, and 
now they've got ridiculous marlin like I think the four pound line class is something over 700 pounds in size which you know to me that's not fishing but that's another story my thanks then to Graham not only for sharing his extensive billfish knowledge with us but also for winding everybody up by reminding us that there's more to fishing than dogfish and if you're lucky the odd smooth hound or cod the only thing he failed to give us was a few investment tips to be able to afford the several hundred dollars and probably more they charge these days simply to set foot on a fully equipped big game boat.